I was talking about that like five minutes ago, like how just think, even if the world is falling apart right now, how things really feel just right. I have a good job. I live with people I loved. I have like people who loved me. I respect myself. I respect my body. And I think it's just rare and it's not gonna last forever. You cannot feel all right all the time. But right now, at this time, I feel like I'm lucky to be who I am, how I am. And I hope I will have this feeling like a long time. But I know life is messy and weird and it's gonna be time where I'm gonna be in the deep shit. But right now, I'm just feeling strong. And I'm like, okay, embrace that and just shine as much as you can. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Right Feeling Podcast. A lot has happened in the last few days and, well, I guess this episode lines up well with what's been happening in the US. So today we're going to get into the subject of the problem with politics. Most of this episode was researched and outlined before all the events that happened this week, so it won't focus too much on what's happened with the Capitol riots, but I do get into it a little bit at the end because I do think everything is connected. But I want to begin by asking you two questions. Do you consider most of the politicians in your country as leaders? Do you think the majority of politicians in your country have the people's interest in mind? The reason why I want to discuss the problem with politics today is because it's become clear that tensions have increasingly heightened between people all over the world. The world has become more and more polarized over politics into the categories of the left, which now has been commonly interchanged with liberals, and the right, or conservatives, with little to no in-between. And I feel that people, myself included, are getting swept up in the polarization and getting distracted from what really matters. I think a lot of us have lost sight of the humanness in issues that have become politicized. And many of us have minimized people and their complex beliefs into categories that demonize them in our minds. But I also feel that a lot of us have become like sheep and have been led one way or another by politicians, media, social media, political commentators, and even one another. The hope of this episode is to get us thinking beyond politics, beyond the left, beyond the right, and remember our humanity. So, a quick disclaimer before we dive in. Um, even though we're talking about politics, I'm not here today to get political. I also know my knowledge is limited and there are endless perspectives and points to explore, but I'll try to keep the points relevant to the three takeaways of this episode which I'll get into a little later. If you have any differing thoughts, opinions, fact checks, remember that I'm very open to hearing what you have to say. And at the end of each episode, I usually provide details on how you can get in contact with me. So hopefully you can keep an open mind until the very end before letting me know your thoughts. I will also add that I try to diversify the perspectives I hear. So I do listen to and I'm familiar with both liberal and conservative media. I'll be focusing more on politics in the US because it's the political terrain I'm most familiar with. 
Um, but I'm sure, well, hopefully not, but maybe you will see parallels with your own country as well. And in this episode, you'll also hear clips from political campaigns, popular political commentary channels, and audio taken from interviews or podcasts with Congress representatives or media producers. The original full audio clips will be linked in the description just in case you want to hear the full context, which is always important. With all that said, there are three main points I want to touch on today. The first being politics at the institutional level. The second, polarization reinforced by the media. And third, the politicization of issues. The first thing to do is to define what I mean by politics so we're all on the same page. In this discussion, politics is not just about political matters, but about power. According to Oxford English Dictionary, politics is defined in one of two ways. The first is the activities associated with the governance of a country or area, especially the debate between parties having power. And the second is activities aimed at improving someone's status or increasing power within an organization. The world of politics is built on power. Power for yourself, power for your own party. And on an institutional level, political matters are used to strengthen or execute power. But why is this problematic? I'm sure there are politicians who started out their career with genuine interest in helping the public through policy. But the vast majority of politicians have proved to just be politicians, not leaders. They're more interested in securing their own positions, furthering their own political careers, or increasing their own power, rather than fulfill the original purpose of being a representative for the people. Here's an audio clip of Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard on the Joe Rogan podcast, explaining what she was told her first day of Congress during orientation. Uh, where after every election happens, the new members of Congress, they go and uh, they have what's called new member orientation. And they give you these books and here's the maps and here's where your office is and, you know, all the all the administrative and logistical stuff. But very quickly, I would say within the first few days, um, you know, where we first come in together as Democrats and Republicans, immediately, okay, Democrats go this way, Republicans go this way, immediately separated. And what we're told right off the bat is, look, this is about uh, getting wins for our political party. And if you work with a Republican, then that's going to hurt the party, especially if you work with a Republican that the Democratic Party is trying to take out. Forget the substance of the idea. Forget the substance of the bill. And this happens on the opposite side as well. Republicans with Democrats, both both political parties are, diff are, are um, guilty of this, where they're really putting the interests of the political party ahead of the people who just voted for us to go and serve them and not just the Democrats who voted for me, but yes, the, the independents and the Republicans, both who voted for me or who didn't, but who uh, I serve as part of my constituency. And uh, you just you, you continue. I've continued to see this where, you know, you'll have a bill that because it's a Democrat bill, Republicans will vote against it. Substance aside or a Republican bill, Democrats will vote against it just because it's a Republican bill. But then, hey, if if they come in and, you know, a month or a year later, introduce the same bill or a similar bill. But now because it's a Democratic bill, OK, everybody, hey, let's go. Let's go and support this legislation. You can, you can imagine why there is so much gridlock in Washington, why nothing really gets done, and ultimately how this divisiveness and this hyperpartisanship 
is hurting the ability for the needs of the American people to be served. When I first heard this, I wasn't sure how I should feel. On one hand, I wasn't very surprised. And on the other hand, I think I still had this expectation that politics was just at the surface of what media portrays. That when it really came down to it, politicians wouldn't just vote along party lines just for the sake of publicity and power, right? And yet, if these politicians are living and breathing in the world of politics, it also makes sense for them to get swept up in it. This world of politics is a chasm away from the real world. There's a clear gap between politicians and the people they represent. It even shows through the way they dress and talk. I mean, if I asked you to imagine what someone who works on Wall Street looks like, what do you imagine? Like a briefcase or like super slick gelled hair? But a very particular style comes to mind, right? Now imagine a politician. In the US, there's a lot of power colors going on. Patriotic colors of red and blue in the form of a full suit or a tie. And they all even have a similar hairstyle. Like for women, there's a lot of bob cuts and pearl jewelry. And the men keep it short and clean, usually swept to the side if it's long enough. It's almost like a politician's classic uniform. And it visually represents to me how they're influenced by the style of their own political world. To give you a more concrete example of the world of politics, I used to work in the city clerk's department in my local city. For background, the role of the city and its employees is essentially to ensure that the city functions. What are taxes used for, um, running meetings between city council members. If you ever watch the show Parks and Rec, it's a good example of how one department works in the city, except without all the comedy. And you've definitely heard of the police and fire departments, and they're usually under the city's management. Other departments would approve urban plans to make sure that construction follows rules and safety regulations. Other departments focus on city engineering, um, so like fixing roads, bridges, train tracks. The people that are working in the city are not elected, but they're hired. And at the top of the hierarchy is the city manager. And this is important. So under the city manager, you have all the department heads. So like the police chief, finance manager, HR manager, the chief city clerk, and department heads could potentially become city managers themselves in the future. And during my employment in the city, I saw that many people tend to be very absorbed in the world of local government. It felt as if this was the entire world for some people. There was a lot of gossip, a lot of energy invested in drama between different departments. It was a bit like high school, actually, where you had to pick a side, you know, which group will you belong in? Who will you be loyal to? And there were some department heads who were willing to step on others to get closer to the city manager with hopes of becoming city manager themselves one day. And even lower standing employees were willing to screw over others to secure higher positions. A lot of people were in it for themselves to secure their jobs or advance their careers. So you end up with a lot of tension within the city. And this reflects on the state of the actual physical city. So on the streets or on the buildings. When you have people who are more absorbed with how they can benefit, who lose sight of the important role they have in improving the city for its citizens, you end up with a lot of oversight. 
If people put half the energy they use to help themselves into actually doing their job to help the city, how much good could they do for the people they were hired to help? And this is just in small local government, right? Imagine how much of this is magnified on a state and federal level. People who are supposed to be in positions of leadership are not leading. And the worst part is, we're buying into their facade. Instead of talking about policies, politicians are more concerned about making the other person or party look bad. It's a common tactic during the election season, usually called a smear campaign. The goal of a smear campaign is to smear the opponent's name. Essentially, it's a game of making your opponent look bad, whether the nature of the message is a total lie, half true, or maybe completely true. For example, this is an audio taken from the second presidential debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I'll tell you what, I didn't think I'd say this, but I'm going to say it, and I hate to say it, but if I win, I am going to instruct my attorney general to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation because there has never been so many lies, so much deception, there has never been anything like it, and we're going to have a special prosecutor. Whether the statements he made were true or not, I think anyone who properly researches can make up their own mind. But my focus is this. What happened after he became president? Were there any official charges made by Trump and his administration? The investigation that started prior to his presidency by the FBI was dropped. Was it just used as a smear tactic to make crooked Hillary stick? Why wasn't there any action for real accountability? Corruptible character is probably one of the strongest smear tactics. If you kept up with the 2020 elections, you might have seen it also used on Joe Biden, or more accurately, on his son, Hunter Biden, who supposedly had corrupt activities in Ukraine. The underlying message was, if you have a corrupt son, you yourself must also be corrupt by association, right? I know there are many conservatives who are frustrated with the lack of coverage this story got in the media, but if you think about it, isn't it kind of weird? It's almost like, okay, I don't have anything that could implicate Sleepy Joe Biden as a corrupt candidate. What's the next best thing I can do? Ah, maybe his son. And this is just one high-profile example. There's a plethora of others. But why do most politicians continue focusing on smearing their opponents? Why don't they focus more on talking about real issues and policies? Because it works. It's easier for us to remember someone's character than the policies they endorse. The same goes for creating a positive image for themselves. Politicians go through great lengths to say things that make them seem relatable or likable, they pander to the voting base they're trying to attract, and they do a great job of talking about the most trendy topics, referencing statistics or mentioning vague ways of how they'd help or change things. It's difficult to tell if they actually care about making things better for vulnerable populations or if they're just using them to get into office. Here are three separate infamous interview audio clips from The Breakfast Club. The first one is with Hillary Clinton, the second, Kamala Harris, and the third, Joe Biden. No more questions? They said no, she has to go. She what's what's something that you always carry with you? Hot Just... sauce. 
Really? You, yeah. Yeah. Really? Are yeah. you getting information right now? <laughs> Hot sauce. <laughs> Hot sauce wow. in my bag, Swag? Hot sauce. Really? Yes. Now, yes. listen, I just want you to know, people are going to see this and say, okay, she's pandering to black people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it working? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when we're talking about marijuana, look, I have forever been an advocate for medicinal marijuana. I have personally known people who only benefited from its use. So there are a lot of reasons why we need to legalize it. Have you ever smoked? I have. Okay. And I and I inhale. I did I did inhale. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but now, yes. I know you have to go. They say you have to go. I just wanted to I ask. just broke news. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean was it in college? Um, uh-huh. See, see I like stuff like that. That's a real <laughs> honest answer. Yeah. Was uh-huh. it a blunt or joint? It was a joint. Hey. Yeah. You remember the high? <laughs> I do. So if it was legalized all throughout the country and <laughs> medicinal, would you, you know, do it? Listen, again? I think that it gives a lot of people joy and we need more joy. <laughs> we need more joy in this world. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. It's I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. So most campaign trails are either about making yourself likable or making your opponent look like the weaker candidate. It's rare to have real leaders talking about real policies they genuinely believe in. Even in the campaigns in which policy is mentioned, it's usually used in a context of making a candidate look bad. So it still ends up being a type of smear campaign. This is an audio clip taken from a television ad back in 2010 during the California governor race. The two biggest candidates were Jerry Brown, who went on to become governor, and Meg Whitman. If our future starts here, should California continue the cutbacks that are crippling our classrooms? Meg Whitman says yes. Whitman says we should cut another $7 billion from our schools. Teacher layoffs 100,000 more, 33% larger class sizes, and even more cuts to arts and music programs that deny our kids a well-rounded education. Tell Meg Whitman that cutting education to pay for tax breaks for the wealthy is wrong for our schools and California's future. Do you see what I mean? Countless election campaigns aim to solely the other candidate's character or credibility. But what does it say about someone who wants to win with such methods? These types of campaigns will only work for as long as we allow it to work on us. But what happens when a candidate talks about issues of actual substance? Is there a social landscape for us to hear real ideas and policies from people in or running for office? I think a lot of us are ready for it, craving it. You see a lot more grassroots donations from citizens to political candidates that campaign on issues and policies they've consistently fought for. For example, look at how Bernie Sanders ran his campaigns. Regardless of your political leaning, you know Bernie for his policies. But I think access to hearing real ideas and policies is still limited to the influence of the media. Of course, the rise of social media has given us direct access to politicians and their thoughts and ideas in a way we've never had before. And the rise of alternative media forms like podcasts have given us time and space for candidates to flesh out their ideas for listeners in a deeper way. But traditional media still dominates the narrative in politics. 
They're still the ones coordinating official political debates and broadcasting speeches or campaigns. Yet, what does the media choose to focus on? Ariana Picari, an ex-MSNBC producer, explains this to Andrew Yang on his podcast, Yang Speaks. That drove me crazy on the trail, too, where it was always like Trump's stupid or inflammatory comment of the day. And then even like I'd be running for president in Iowa, New Hampshire, and they'd be like, Trump said this. What do you think of that? And I'm just like, are you kidding right. me? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, really? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it, 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 that um, that same idea was pervasive throughout the, you know, and it was last election cycle as well, um, the Democratic primary process. You know, if there was a personality dispute that got way more attention than any interesting policy conversation. And I think there were lots of interesting policy conversations we could have had, you know, um, the ideas that you had being the start of it. Um, uh, but then, you know, when it came down to the general and it was Biden versus Trump, and, you know, every, almost every single, I, I know that they tried to, to, to focus on Biden um, when they could, but it always turned into a segment about Trump. You know, they don't want to talk about anything that is negative towards Democrats because that was bad for the MSNBC audience. And the same thing, you know, applied to the Democratic primaries as well. You don't there just wasn't a full discussion that ultimately benefits everyone. So. The way that they covered the protest, they they wanted conflict and they put the correspondence on the ground in a way that they, they even if nothing was happening, they wanted it to seem like something was happening. And if there was a car that was on fire, they're gonna play that video over and over again. Meanwhile, 95% of the protests were peaceful. But I've been in the control room, going back to 2015 and, and the, uh, the Black Lives Matters protests then, people, um, they would monitor all of those protests. They'd have cameras and choppers, you know, they're monitoring the protests. And unless it turned violent, they would not, quote, take it live. You know, they they wouldn't show that peaceful protest because nothing was happening, according to them. You know, it was it was boring and it wouldn't make good TV. It's one of those cases where you kind of know, but when you hear about it, it still doesn't sit right. By focusing on drama and conflict, our mind is also shifted to focus on drama and conflict. And then you have political commentators comment on this drama and conflict, which fuels even more drama and conflict. And then the viewers talk about the drama and conflict, plus the added commentary from political commentators in their own social circles. And what this does is sow the seeds of division. Because the coverage of drama and conflict is not impartial. There's an underlying narrative in the way it's broadcasted, and that narrative changes depending on which media channel or political commentator you watch. So I think this is a good transition point into the media's role in polarization. If you don't know what polarization means, um, think of opposing magnets, and when you're trying to kind of touch them together, they just kind of fly off into different directions. So basically, polarization happens when you have different viewpoints that are driving each other farther and farther apart. And here, when I talk about media, I mean both traditional and alternative media sources. So political commentators, for example. Though I am excluding comedians who also do political commentary only because I'm not a regular listener and I don't think I could represent their views with enough accuracy. 
I also don't think you could talk about polarization without bringing in the impact of social media and its algorithms. So maybe I should start with how polarization looks like in the US. How do people on the right see the left? I've heard things like liberals are snowflakes, oversensitive, they're full of outrage and are all about cancel culture, or they're free speech suppressors, they wanna take away our rights, they're social justice warriors, environmental hippies, violent anti-fascists, socialists, communists, and people who don't believe in science, or more specifically, biology. If you're a liberal, you're assumed to be registered Democrat. On the other side, the right is seen as conservatives who are religious, close-minded patriots, they're selfish, or they're racists, bigots, sexists, violent fascists, white supremacists, Trump supporters, and people who don't believe in science, or more specifically, environmental science. If you're conservative, you're assumed to be registered Republican. Of course, there are other political descriptions like independence, progressive, libertarian, classic libertarian, and so forth, but the dominant groups are now the left and the right. We've gotten to the point where it's almost like if you lean one way, then you can't possibly have any crossover values with the other way. It's increasingly become all or nothing. If you're a liberal, you must also be outraged, a rioter, a socialist, a freedom suppressor, etc. If you're conservative, then you must also be a racist, a bigot, a sexist, fascist, etc. I think this audio clip from Hassan Piker, a relatively popular liberal political commentator, formerly part of the Young Turks, sums up what I mean quite well. For context, this is his reaction video to another video on Trump supporters who are given different prompts to agree or disagree with. So like, Trump's behavior can be offensive. Do you agree or disagree? One Trump supporter initially felt personally offended that Trump had allegedly made fun of disabled people, and this was Hassan's reaction. The one time he offended me, I quickly found out that it was from fake news. Um, it was the disabled thing, like the little, that little thing. Wait, is she like, <laughs> wait, is she a conservative? that cares about ableism <laughs> what <laughs> what the f also what is that was fake what was he doing how was that fake and not like literally making fun of a disabled reporter and i see this reflected in my social media bubbles while the world intensely watched the tight race between biden and trump in the 2020 election I saw many social media posts about the disbelief and disappointment at the number of votes cast for Trump. That 74 million Trump voters were closet racists or bigots. Because the narrative was, if you're a Trump supporter, then you must be. It wouldn't make sense to vote for him otherwise. But with this all or nothing categorization, I think we lose the opportunity to understand and address perhaps real concerns or reasons why they may have for voting the way they did. There's no denying that there are racists and bigots who have voted for Trump. Look at the openly white supremacist Richard Spencer and his followers as a key example. But to say all 74.2 million people voted for Trump purely because they're fascists or close-minded religious bigots just further feeds into this polarizing reality. And it's the same on the right-wing side of the spectrum. 
When Black Lives Matter's protests erupted in May last year, all I could hear conservative media talk about was the rioting, the destructive tendencies of the left, of Antifa. How dare they deface federal buildings? They're intimidating people in their homes. How is it not a double standard that we are all asked to be in lockdown, but it's absolutely okay for BLM to be marching in the streets? Why are protesters trying to make white people feel guilty when we haven't done anything wrong except being white? The narrative was, if you're protesting, you're a rioter or a looter. You're stoking outrage and cancel culture. But again, with this all-or-nothing categorization, I think we lose the opportunity to understand and address the very real experiences that go unreported, and why people feel there is still injustice. There's no denying there was rioting and looting. We all saw the burning shops and the footage of people making off with Nike shoes. I also saw a video of a 70-year-old man trying to protect his burning mattress shop with a fire extinguisher from flames and looters. And he was hit with cement-filled water bottles and beat down by one protester. But in the same video, other protesters were also appalled by this violent behavior and ran to the man's side to help him. I also saw footage of two hooded protesters, put that in air quotes because no one was sure if they were actually there to protest for BLM, who were spray painting and defacing a local restaurant, and other peaceful protesters were appalled. They shooed them away and said, this is not what our movement is about. To depict all the BLM protests as tribal, violent, outraged anti-fascists further feeds into this polarizing reality. The ironic thing is, the issues of polarization are widely discussed by media outlets, both in traditional and alternative channels. But what's being done to mend the fracture? On one hand, I understand that media will always have its biased leanings, because their beliefs and values will guide the underlying narrative of the stories they tell. And specifically with political commentators, they obviously have their own political leanings which bleed into their commentary and opinions. But where do you draw the line? It's obvious that there's no sense of where that line should be. And that's a huge problem because it's shown to breed distrust and reinforce polarization. The media have to be more responsible with how they cover the news. And this goes for all media. For example, something that really bothered me the other day was while I was listening to the BBC World podcast and they had discussed how the Dutch government was the last EU country to start their COVID vaccine programs and how this was surprising given how efficient the Dutch government is typically known to be. And while this is true, my question is also, what is the point of this narrative? What is the point of making this COVID vaccine program into a race between countries? Yes, it's a valid argument that the Dutch government could have done better, and they themselves have also recognized that. But shouldn't it be more about having a proper long-term rollout plan? Emphasizing and shaming a country for being last to start the vaccination program shows the problem with news coverage. It's almost always negative or focusing on or even creating some kind of conflict. I mean, you heard the audio clip earlier from the ex-MSNBC producer, and it's toxic. These are the stories that saturate our minds, and when we aren't thinking critically, it's easy to get swept up in the narrative. But it's not just about creating conflict. The media also sometimes glamorizes reality, and that's still toxic. 
When most media sources called the election for Biden, you saw this glorified narrative around his victory. That people have elected him because Biden is someone who is of good character, that the American people have chosen decency and goodness. Even going as far to say, it was he who brought out more diverse voters, and he has broken the record for the most votes cast ever for any elected official. Implying that all this was because of Biden's character. They even made Biden and Harris time person of the year. I mean, the facts are true. The 2020 election had the highest voter turnout in history. And more than ever before, minorities and young people cast their vote. But was it really because of Biden's character? Obviously, I don't know Biden's character personally, and maybe he really is someone of decency and goodness. But to attribute him for the reason why voters voted the way they did is without a doubt exaggerating what really happened. Most voters voted for Biden because they felt they could only pick between two parties. An overwhelming amount of voters voted because they simply didn't want Trump, knowing that voting for a third party may give Trump the winning hand. And this glamorization is problematic because it's disguising a very real issue in the U.S. A two-party tyranny. It's now a democracy in which you're constrained to vote between the lesser of two evils, rather than a candidate you actually believe in. And of course, there's no perfect candidate, right? Of course. But right now we're voting between two politicians, or in this case, a businessman, rather than a leader. We then have to settle with a battle for power between two parties, and what does that do for the people but further strengthen the world of politics? But instead of saying it as it is, there's glorification, dramatization, exaggeration of unproductive half-truths. It's because of this kind of disingenuous coverage that alternative media outlets are now growing in popularity. But the problem there is that they also focus on conflict and their own biases. For example, after the Georgia Senate runoff, it became clear that there would be an even number of Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. And it was assumed that Democrats had control of the Senate then, as the vice president, who will be Kamala Harris, a Democrat, will have the power to break tie votes in the Senate. This is an audio clip from Ben Shapiro, a popular conservative political commentator. His show is the second most downloaded podcast in the U.S., and his news and opinion website, The Daily Wire, has some of the highest engagement on social media beating out media giants like NPR, ABC, and USA Today. This clip is taken from the episode after the Georgian runoff, titled, So How Fucked Are We? And in the meantime, there's going to need to be another thing that is done. And that is we need a cultural solidarity movement between conservatives and classical liberals and people who still love basic freedoms in the United States. That's the biggest point. That's the biggest point. We're going to need a cultural solidarity movement. I want to talk about that for just one second. Okay, we are going to need a movement where people support one another, where when somebody gets fired, conservatives rehire the person, where when one person sounds off inside a company, a thousand people sound off inside the company. Folks on the left are excellent at this sort of cultural solidarity. It's why you see folks unionizing over at Alphabet, the Google company. Now, I'm not calling for conservatives to unionize. I'm saying that conservatives need to say to their employers that 
If you start firing people based on their political point of view, we will all walk out. That we are not going to tolerate being forced to parrot the woke memory of our employers. That if we're in college and the college administrators decide to go after conservatives or they decide to put in place bad administrative features, that we're going to go to the donors and we're going to remove our money from the system. Republicans need to get it together. Democrats have acted with solidarity and they've used that solidarity to cram down their particular agenda. Conservatives need to build alternative sources of information. They need alternative sources of entertainment. They need to do what the left has been doing. Because the right believes in the power of markets, because the right believes in the power of individuals, we don't think institutionally. Okay, and that has its benefits and it has its drawbacks. Its, its benefit is that we do think individually, which is good. The drawback, however, is that because we think individually and not institutionally, we do not build institutions. Democrats build institutions. You want to know why America has moved consistently to the left since the 1960s? It's because one by one, the left, the radical left increasingly, has taken over nearly every institution in American life, forced it to the left, and forced everybody else to shut up. They've engaged in a renormalization effort that has succeeded. Here's the thing. Renormalization can be pursued in reverse. You can renormalize an organization by demonstrating intransigence when your rights are violated. You have to do it with your friends. You have to get together with other people. You have to make the connections and you have to stand up as one. It's not enough to have one person stand up and get fired. It's not enough to have one person standing in the, in the even, a, even a politician, even President Trump. It's not enough to have one person standing in the river of culture and holding up his hand and saying, no, we all have to do it together. We all have to do it together. And that's what we're going to be working on at Daily Wire. I think that's what we all have to work on as Americans, as conservatives, because a lot of these principles are not just conservative. They're just basic American principles. And that's what's going to be under assault. Your freedom of religion, your freedom of association, your freedom of speech. That's what's coming. Get ready. The battle is on. So there are a couple things to point out. The first being that this reveals the assumption that all Democrats will vote not based on policies they agree or disagree with, but on party lines. And that all Republicans will vote, not based on policies they agree or disagree with, but on party lines. And this has proven to be true for most politicians. I mean, this is exactly the problem with politics we were touching on earlier. But I hope that this actually becomes a time, an opportunity for the few leaders we have in Congress to step up and vote based on genuine interest for the will of the people they were elected to represent. Whether or not this idealistic vision comes to be, well, I guess we'll just have to see. The second point is that this audio clip shows the further stoking of conflict by alternative media. Ben often talks about the issues of polarization in the media and how that's problematic. But at the same time, his own commentary is also very polarizing. Here's another audio clip of him mentioning the polarization in the media's coverage of the BLM protests. If you are stealing a TV, you are a bad on the back of the of the killing of an innocent black man. You're a bad person, red, white or green. This is insane. And for all the people in the media, you're saying, well, you can't pay attention to this. You're paying attention to this. You're not paying attention to all the other bad stuff that's happening in the country. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. Not only that, we spent an entire episode on Ahmed Arbery. We spent entire episodes talking about George Floyd. Everyone, again, agrees on this stuff. The attempt to polarize America around the question of whether rioting and looting is a justified uprising. I'm seeing language of uprising. That's not an uprising. That's not an uprising. What are you rising up against? Target? Is Target the great oppressor? This is the kind of rhetoric that reinforces conflict and division. Of course, it's healthy to point out and criticize problems where criticism is due. 
whether that's within the media or within social issues or within politics. Indeed, there are aspects to constructively criticize on both sides. But the pervading problem is the all-or-nothing mentality. At the moment, criticism is not given constructively. It's coming from an us-versus-them mindset from both sides. I've seen things from conservatives like, you must be a communist and want to take away all my rights if you want gun control. Or from liberals like, you must be racist if you don't think rioting and looting is okay. But why does one have to mean the other? Why can't you want gun control and also want to maintain rights in a democracy? Why can't you frown upon rioting and looting and still want inequality and racial injustice to end? There's no room to hear reasonable criticisms as both sides just get defensive and aggressive out of feeling misunderstood and mischaracterized. And all this just continues to unravel the already fragile social fabric. As time passed, it became more obvious to me that the world was becoming more polarized. And I say the world because I've seen the influence of US politics and media coverage extend beyond its borders here in Europe. And this polarization is honestly pretty fucking terrifying. I thought, is this it? From this point forward, will we always be one tribe against the other, fighting it out and subjugating the losing side? Is there not a way we can actually have healthy discussions where we try to hear out our different values, why we believe what we believe, and potentially come to a new understanding? Is that even possible anymore? Was it ever possible? I had thought so. In the US, there's a popular belief to never speak about three things at the dinner table. Politics, religion, and money. And yet, when I first studied abroad in Europe, that's all I could talk about. And it was amazing to bear witness to how people with different values could come to a common understanding. I mean, the person I am today and what I believe in today is actually vastly different from what I had believed before I first stepped foot in Europe. And I have to attribute that to all the healthy and open-minded discussions with people who are now my friends. And of course, to be fair, my friends are very well-traveled and open-minded to different cultures, so it's not like our values were completely polarized to begin with. But if they had not been so open to hearing where I was coming from, why I believed what I believed, and non-judgmentally challenging me in a casual setting, I wonder if I'd still have the same closed-minded beliefs I once did. And after thinking about it some more, I realized that polarization takes place in particular spaces. Obviously, in media coverage, in alternative media broadcasts, and also on social media, like Facebook comments with strangers, or on Twitter, or on Instagram. These are not spaces where people can have honest and in-depth conversations that lead to understanding. It might be possible, but for the most part, these are just spaces where the extremes speak the loudest. But there are spaces where polarization is minimized and understanding is possible. Podcasts are a great example, but I think that one-on-one -on -one or intimate group conversations with the people you've built relationships with is where communication can really happen. But the biggest blockade to understanding is the politicization of issues. And of course, it makes sense for that to also happen, right? I mean, people tend to get passionate about policies because policies impact our world, our lives in a very tangible way. And when people have different worldviews, 
it does become a problem because policies actualize our worldviews. But I think instead of demonizing the people in your life for their worldviews, try and have an open conversation about it. And here I want to be clear that I'm not talking about extremists. Um, I'm a bit hesitant to entertain the idea of having an open conversation with extremists like actual white supremacists. But then, even then, I've also seen stories. Yeah, I've there's a guy named Christian Picciolini. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but he was basically a neo-Nazi skinhead, a former neo-Nazi skinhead, and he had completely changed and renounced his actions and is now trying to disengage extremists and help them understand the problems of hate and extremism. Hmm. Oh, this is a problem, right? Like maybe if no one had that conversation with him, maybe he wouldn't have also seen, hmm. So it is possible to change their mindset, but I mean, I guess if you have people like that in your life, whether it's like family or um, maybe people that you used to be friends with, but you kind of had a falling out with, then maybe it might be worth trying to talk to them because there is some kind of connection there, you know? Because the thing is, people are always open to what's more familiar to them and they get defensive when they're threatened. So talking about politicized issues isn't going to get anyone anywhere, especially when we begin writing off the other person immediately as the other side. But speaking to one another's worldview might get us somewhere. And maybe I naively believe this, but I do. Because I've personally experienced it. So I guess now is a good time for a little story. <laughs> believe it or not, um, for quite some time, I didn't believe in gay rights. Now, before you hate me, um, let me try to get you to understand how this changed. I grew up in a religious environment, and the belief was, don't hate the sinner, but hate the sin. What I had been taught was that homosexuality was wrong, that it's important to love people, but by accepting someone's sin, you're actually condemning them to live a life of sin which isn't very loving. Because the understanding was that we all sin and we should try to live in the most Christ-like way possible and support each other in that. And I was also taught that we shouldn't accept what the Bible calls an abomination. Right, so... I don't know exactly how it came up, but a guy I was seeing when I was younger, um, he wasn't religious. Well, he and I got onto the subject somehow, and I, I think maybe there was some kind of gay rights legislation that passed, and we were discussing it, and I remember he was disgusted by what I said, which was the first time he ever reacted in that way, and it really startled me. And I was trying to explain that it's not about hating gay men and women, it's about protecting them from their sin. And he had no words to express how he felt about what I said. I think he was like, uh, I can't believe you would believe something like that, and he just walked away. And I remember I was trying to nail him down to explain myself, but he just flat out ignored me. And then we ended up meeting up another day, and I remember I was explaining to him how he had made me feel by ignoring me and walking away, and, and he explained why. Basically, he expected better of me. 
He knew that I believed in better for the world, that I cared about people and the environment. I even had a post-it note on top of my office desk where I wrote something like, what was it? If you change, if you change the world for even one person, then that makes all the difference. Something like that. That's something he ended up referencing. So he was just shocked at how inconsistent my view on homosexuality was to the altruism I had for people and the world. And he gently told me this and also asked me how I could feel okay depriving someone of something as precious as being with someone they deeply love, depriving someone of such an integral relationship in life. And it really got me thinking. I didn't change my perspective overnight, but it took a while of reflection and trying to understand what I really believed in to get me to realize on my own that I was so wrong. And now looking back, I'm super grateful that he pointed out this inconsistency in such a gentle way that spoke to my worldview, because it was through that gentleness that I was challenged. And with a shift in perspective, my stance on gay rights policy has also evolved. So it is possible for conversation and understanding. And I know I was talking about this with my friend the other day, and she was like, but Jane, you're special. You're not like the others. And what she said is true, right? I had the privilege to study abroad, to travel, to create conditions for my mind, to be challenged and open up. But I don't think, although sometimes I subconsciously wish it, um, I don't think I'm really all that special. I think people can change their worldviews for the better, or at the very least come to understand why people believe what they do and come to a reasonable compromise. But I think in order to do that, we need to stop politicizing issues and have real offline conversations, or online if you can't see you know, your friends or your family. But we need to stop feeding into polarization by being more critically minded when intaking news and elect real representatives who are leaders, not politicians, or maybe even consider running for office. <laughs> Try stepping out of your belief bubble and diversify different media outlets you listen to and hear the perspective of the other side. You might find that you're extremely annoyed or frustrated from time to time, or maybe almost all the time, but that's great. Try to understand why and have a clear line of reasoning. Know that you don't have to agree with everything or most of what someone says or believes. It's not all or nothing. And by hearing the other side, you'll be more prepared to have discussions with people with another worldview. The last two takeaways are for politicians, political commentators, and media. Be responsible with how you communicate, and try to reflect and see if you have any hypocrisy. As a politician, ask yourself if you remember why you initially wanted to pursue a position in office. Yes, of course there's going to be compromise when you're engaged in politics, but don't make your representative position about politics or power. Don't pander to voters and give false promises just to stay in office. You're in a position of leadership, so don't misuse it. And the same goes for the media. If you really want to prevent polarization, don't just talk about it, but do something about it. 
And of course, I know that the media is made up of so many different people. And great, if you're a writer, challenge your editor. Or if you're an editor or producer or somebody in the higher hierarchy of the media, you know the influence of your broadcasts. So try not to make it about ratings and clickbait and conflict. And yeah, maybe I'm too idealistic. Maybe it's naive of me to believe people can change. And to be clear, I don't think everyone will. And I must say, I've had my fair share of frustrated outbreaks challenging people with other beliefs online. And there are definitely moments of impatience and also moments where I'm like, "Mm, do I really believe in the good of humanity? But I think for the sake of peace, both on a personal and world scale, we need to at least try. Try and change the political, media, and social landscape. We've all seen the very real effects manifested in the 2020 election on a divided world. I won't get too much into it now, but a conversation needs to be had about the riots on Capitol Hill just a few days ago. Polarization paves the way for widespread radicalization. There's no doubt Trump incited what many would call a coup in other countries. And those who fed the insurrection must also be held accountable. But I also see the media washing their hands of any responsibility. And there's now this blame game of, oh, it's all because of Republicans and conservative media fanning the flames, or, oh no, it's because of Democrats and liberal media for polarizing our society. But in reality, it's all of us. Even the audience. Because the seeds of division have been sown for years and we've all been watering it. This is the problem with politics, with polarization, with politicization. It's a toxic system and it will only get worse unless we choose and act otherwise. (sighs) Anyway, thank you very much for listening if you've made it all the way here. Of course, there are other things I would have liked to cover or dive deeper into, but I think this will be it for today. Again, if you have any thoughts or disagreements, please feel free to direct message me on Instagram at therightfeeling underscore or email me at jane, that's J-A-N-E, at therightfeeling.org. And if you found this podcast episode useful, please share it with your friends, your family, maybe your political enemies. And in the meantime, let's power through all the crazy together. I can't wait to feel the feels with you in the next episode.